This is Mary Smigelski. I am the co-chair of the Lewis Brisbois, Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Practice, and I'm sitting here with my co-chair, Josh Cantro, looking forward to discussing a lot of legal developments in the land of the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. Yeah, there have been some uh, interesting developments over the years, um, and the cases that we're going to be talking about precede the um, actual jury trial um, that we talked about toward the end of last episode, and uh, they touch on some key issues relating to to BIPA and uh, various defenses that have been raised by companies fighting the statute. And we, had t- we talked in the prior episode about the Illinois Supreme Court's decision in the Rosenbach case, which was really um, about uh, standing. And another key case that came out of the Illinois Supreme Court involved a defense that had been raised, which is that, hey, in the workplace environment, when there are BIPA violations there, doesn't the Illinois Workers' Compensation Act supersede BIPA? Shouldn't it supersede BIPA? And that was a defense that a lot of companies raised through motion practice. Precisely. Many of these cases that have been filed were filed related to time clocks in the workplace, a clock where instead of having someone come and punch in an employee number to clock in for the day, an individual would come and put a finger on a keypad or they would place their face in front of a machine or use some other alleged biometric technology. And I say alleged because some of these machines are not actually doing what the allegations in a lawsuit say. But because those were in the workplace, you cannot have an injury in the workplace that is a result of your employment that proceeds in court. The Illinois Workers' Compensation Act, as do Workers' Compensation Acts in all the other states, preempt those claims from proceeding in court. So when we saw these claims initially, we said, you are seeking damages for an injury in the workplace. Therefore, this cannot proceed in court. So this is a question that, again, was raised by motions and numerous rulings in lower courts and intermediate appellate courts. And it made its way to the Illinois Supreme Court uh, earlier this year, in the McDonald versus Symphony Bronzeville Park case. And on February 3rd, the Illinois Supreme Court uh, answered the following certified question Do the exclusivity provisions of the Illinois Workers' Compensation Act bar a claim for statutory damages under BIPA where an employer is alleged to have violated an employee's statutory? privacy rights under BIPA. What did the Illinois Supreme Court say? The Illinois Supreme Court affirmed that the Workers' Compensation Act does not preempt workplace BIPA claims when only statutory damages but no actual injury is alleged. So effectively what they said is that if a plaintiff files a lawsuit saying there was an actual injury and presumably then seeking actual damages under BIPA, 
that could be preempted by the Workers' Compensation Act because they've alleged an actual workplace injury. However, if only statutory damages are claimed, that's not something that's preempted by the Illinois Workers' Comp Act. Yes, very interesting. And that's something that uh, Justice Burke picked up um, in his concurring opinion, stating that had the plaintiff not dropped claims for mental anguish, then the exclusivity provisions of the Illinois Workers' Compensation Act would have barred her claims. And it's really fascinating because Justice Burke went on to make a comment along the lines of, you know, clever pleading um, and specifically said that the opportunity for gamesmanship in pleading highlights the incongruity of applying the Compensation Act's exclusivity provisions to Privacy Act claims that allege actual injuries, but not to those that allege technical violations. In other words, you can plead around the preemption of the Workers' Compact. Which is exactly what uh, we've seen after that decision has been issued. Precisely. And a lot of cases had been stayed pending that decision, a lot of the cases that were about the workplace. So once that decision came down, we were thinking many of these cases would proceed and move forward in litigation. However, there are other cases that then were being decided by appellate courts and up on appeal with the Illinois Supreme Court. So many stays have continued, which is why this area of law is still very much in development. Exactly. And one of those issues is uh, what is the statute of limitations? And you may wonder, well, doesn't BIPA itself provide for statute of limitations? Nope. It doesn't. I mean, BIPA is a very detailed law. I'm looking at uh, four very dense pages of the Act, and it's got a lot of technicalities in there, but there's nothing about statute of limitations. So in a case called Thames versus Blackhorse Carriers, Inc., what will the Illinois Supreme Court decide? So the Illinois Supreme Court is deciding, does a one-year statute of limitations or a five-year statute of limitations apply to Section 15B or Section 15D claims? Um, BIPA has various different sections under it, and actually I think this might be a good time to just take a quick pause and tell everyone what those different sections are because it's important just in general for um, understanding BIPA. So a 15A claim refers to the possession of biometric identifiers or biometric information. And that's the one where you have to develop a written policy um, made available to the public that establishes a retention schedule and guidelines for permanently destroying biometric identifiers. 15B refers to the collection, capture, purchase of biometric information and it says, basically, you can't do that. Uh, any business operating in Illinois, you can't do any of those things unless you first inform the subject in writing that you're going to do so, that you inform the subject of the specific purpose and length of term for which you're going to collect this information, use it or store it, and you receive a written release executed by the subject of their consent to this. And 15C says that you can't be in possession of a biometric identifier information 
um, and sell that, lease that, trade that, or otherwise profit from it, which you know could be argued that that effectively prohibits any company that is earning money off of biometric information from doing business in Illinois. Yes. Um, and I'm thinking of a certain uh, social media company. And we can talk about that later. But that's, uh, that was a concern for them in a case they got sued on. So Section D um, refers to the fact that no private entity in possession of a biometric identifier or information may disclose, redisclose, or otherwise disseminate a person's identifier or biometric information unless they get consent to that disclosure. And rounding it up, Section 15E requires that a private entity in possession of biometric identifiers or information must store, transmit, and protect it from disclosure using the reasonable standard of care within that entity's industry. Um, And it has to be the same or more protective than the manner in which that entity stores other confidential and sensitive information. So... Now, yeah. now that we've described all of that, circling back to Tim's versus Black Horse. So, Tim's versus Black Horse was argued in September of 2022, and the lawyer arguing on behalf of Black Horse, I thought, did an exceptional job of explaining why a one-year statute of limitations should apply. Um, The distinction between the one-year and the five-year statute here is that five years is the Illinois catch-all statute of limitations. If there is no other statute of limitations that is analogous or appropriately applied to the statute, it defaults to the five-year catch-all. However, in this case, there is an excellent argument that a one-year statute should apply, or perhaps a two-year statute, although the court is not considering the two-year issue. So in another interesting case that is um, presently under review by the Illinois Supreme Court, the court is considering when does a claim under BIPA accrue? And specifically in Cothran versus White Castle Systems, the court is going to decide the following certified question. Do Section 15B and 15D claims accrue each time a private entity scans a person's biometric identifier and each time a private entity transmits such a scan to a third party, respectively, or only upon the first scan and first transmission? And this could have huge impact on statute of limitations because... You know, if you've got an employee who's working at a company for years um, and the first scan occurred back in, let's say, uh, let's make it easy, 2016, well, if a case was filed tomorrow relating to that scan, that would be outside of the statute of limitations under even the most lenient standard, the five-year statute that Mary described Um, that's being considered by the Supreme Court in the Tim's case. But if that employee continued to work for the company up until yesterday, well, they could argue that uh, statute of limitations didn't start running until yesterday. Precisely. And that 
is a very interesting philosophical question because the plaintiff's bar is arguing that all of these defendants should have known about BIPA in 2008 when it was passed and must have known, should have known, yet there is no such argument about the plaintiffs. And what is the responsibility of the plaintiff? Shouldn't they have known about either BIPA or have known what they were doing such that they were aware of their rights and should have filed a lawsuit should they wish to do so? And that's sort of, uh, what, a waiver and estoppel argument? It is. Okay. And so that's a kind of a new defense that we're, we're seeing defendants consider as we go forward. And going back to the White Castle case, it's pretty interesting because the alleged biometric system that White Castle put in place was put in place before BIPA was passed. And the technology actually had a screen that popped up and said, do you want to use your biometrics or something along those lines? And if an employee said no, they would not use their finger on a machine. They would simply sign different documents or do things manually. That was years and years ago. And this was an individual, the plaintiff in that case, who worked for the company for years and as of you know certain filings had remained working for the company. So precisely the um, description that Josh gave is really what this case turns on and future litigation will turn on. The other issue that's coming out of the White Castle case is whether these violations can be stacked. So for example, if you first um, scanned your finger into biometric technology um, five years ago, and for a time clock case, you did that each day you were working four times, you know, scanning in for at the beginning of the day, out for lunch, back in after lunch, out at the end of the day, that could be four violations per employee per day for a five-year period. And if you look at that, even from a $1,000 per violation negligence standpoint, that's huge money. Huge money. So that's going to be be interesting. I have seen some prominent plaintiff class action lawyers disavow that 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 argument, that stacking argument, because uh, I think they they are concerned that if you go there, you're looking at uh, potentially um, an unconstitutional fine and penalty provi- provision. Something that, if taken literally under the example that Mary provided, um, could bankrupt um, uh, well-capitalized Illinois businesses if you just had even a few plaintiffs in the class, if you're stacking um, violations like that. Absolutely. And as you said, well-respected plaintiff's attorneys are disavowing that and saying that that is not what was intended to be the statute. However, on the other hand, there are other attorneys who are providing damage calculations in the billions of dollars and who don't seem to care that it would bankrupt companies or ultimately be ruled unconstitutional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, uh, they've got to be able to afford their private jets, right? I, I think they're doing pretty well right now, given uh, the settlements in this area. Absolutely. So interesting as private jets are, what can we hear about standing, Josh? Well, standing, uh, we had talked about standing in state court and what um, harm, if any, had to be alleged to get into state court. And basically, the Illinois Supreme Court in Rosenbach said none. 
Um, but federal courts have their own standing requirements, which are Article Three standing, and that applies for you know virtually any case uh, that Article Three standing must be shown to get through the gateway into federal court. And so there have been some interesting uh, BIPA decisions that have come down in the federal courts on standing. And again, recall that we discussed that there are basically five types of BIPA claims, 15A, B, C, D, and E. And these decisions are dependent upon the type of claim. So in one of um, the earlier ones, the Seventh Circuit held in the Bryant versus Compass Group case that Article Three standing exists for F Section 15B claims, okay? And th again, those are claims about uh, whether a private entity may collect, capture, purchase, or receive through trade biometric information or identifiers. In the um, Cothrane versus Whitecastle case, which was a Seventh Circuit case as well, and again, that um, a certified question on a different issue is before the Illinois Supreme Court, as we previously discussed, on statute of limitations accrual. But here, um, the Seventh Circuit held in White Castle, relying on the Bryant case, that standing exists for Section 15D claims, which is unlawful disclosure without consent, because failure to comply with consent provisions of 15D deprives a person of the opportunity to consider whether the terms of collection and usage are acceptable given the attendant risks. So uh, those are two of the standing decisions. Do you want to address the others? No, not really. <laughs> but I do want to say that it's an interesting how you, you may ask, why do, is there a White Castle case that's in the Seventh Circuit? And why is that same case before the Illinois Supreme Court? And what happened there is that there was a decision in the federal district court with respect to the accrual argument that was appealed on an interlocutory basis to the Seventh Circuit. The Seventh Circuit said, no, no, we're not going to handle that one. That should be the Illinois Supreme Court and sent it over to the Illinois Supreme Court, which is how they came to be addressing the certified question. Good point there. And the Seventh Circuit, of course, would not need to certify to the Illinois Supreme Court whether there's Article Three standing. In fact, that would be improper to do so because that is something only federal courts can do. So um, taking as you don't want to pick up on the other standing cases, Mary, I will do them and I'm happy to do them. Look, there is the Hogan versus Amazon case, which is March 30, 2022, case out of the Northern District of Illinois, which addressed Section 15C claims. And the court held that there is no standing for these claims, which are the unlawful sale of or profit from biometrics, because plaintiffs failed to allege how the sale harmed them individually. And in the last standing case, um, this one addresses 15A, the Fox versus Dakota case. The Seventh Circuit held that standing Section 15A claims exists if plaintiffs allege that the defendant retained biometric information beyond the time limits of the statute. 
However, the court held in that case that the plaintiffs lacked standing to pursue such claims for failure to publish a retention schedule because that is a duty not owed to the plaintiffs in particular, but to the public generally. And again, um, for standing to exist, it must be concrete and particularized harm. And in that case, there wasn't such harm. Precisely. Now, Judge, I will talk about preemption, however. Okay. Well, you get the more interesting subject. Well, exactly. (laughs) That's what I was going for. So um, federal preemption really has to do with if a state law conflicts with a federal law, the federal law essentially will prevail and will preempt someone from proceeding under the state law. So one of the very interesting ways, and frankly, one that is not real surprising, Um, that has happened in the BIPA world is that certain cases in which a collective bargaining agreement is involved and which requires the interpretation of that collective bargaining agreement have been held to be preempted by federal law and they have not been able to proceed um, with those cases under BIPA in a court. One of those is a decision in Miller versus Southwest Airlines, which came down fairly early in the BIPA space in 2019 from the Seventh Circuit. Another is from 2021, uh, Fernandez versus Carey, which also came out of the Seventh Circuit. In Fernandez, the court held that the Labor Management Relations Act broadly preempts BIPA when plaintiffs are subject to an applicable collective bargaining agreement. And Miller versus Southwest very similarly said if there's the interpretation or application of a collective bargaining agreement, it is something that has to be adjudicated not by um, the court, but under the appropriate law. In that case, the Federal Railway Labor Act. Um, Krislov versus American Airlines came down also in 2021, and that came out of the Northern District of Illinois and was perhaps, again, not a real surprising decision, but that BIPA claims brought by consumers can be preempted by the Airline Deregulation Act. Um, in contrast, there was another district court decision, Flurry versus Union Um, which was a railway issue, and BIPA claims in that case brought by a truck driver against a railroad were not preempted by the Federal Railroad Safety Act. And part of that decision, as I understand it, is because there was not the requirement that that act actually be interpreted to get to the bottom of those claims. So it seems to me that a lesson from these cases is that... um, An attorney looking at bringing preemption defenses should figure out, hey, do these class of plaintiffs, or putative class of plaintiffs, I should say, are they potentially subject to a federal statute like the Federal Railway Labor Act or the Labor Management Relations Act or the Airline Deregulation Act and things like that? Because there could be really good collective bargaining agreement defenses. And these have been, in our experience, some of the best defenses and some of the most successful defendants, def- defenses that defendants have brought with regard to BIPA. And what happens is, if you can get um, these defenses to work, the cases usually get sent to arbitration instead of litigation. 
And speaking of arbitration, one of the things clients have asked us about in the BIPA context is, should I implement an arbitration agreement? Should I have an arbitration agreement with a class action waiver for all of my employees? And um, companies in the consumer space also often have terms and conditions where they already have an arbitration agreement. So is arbitration a good idea, Josh? Well, I I mean, it, it really is a case-by-case case basis, but I would say as a general rule, uh, particularly when you're dealing with BIPA, uh, which is going to be, um, most of those cases are going to be brought in Illinois courts, although some have been brought in other courts. But given how plaintiff-friendly Illinois courts tend to be, I'd rather be in arbitration representing a business than litigation as a general rule. Do you think that there's a risk, though, if you have a class case and then could that turn into a mass arbitration situation with multiple arbitrations? It could. Or if there is a class action waiver in the collective bargaining agreement and you can't have a class action, a company could get flooded with 4,000 individual arbitration claims. Query, is that going to be more expensive to litigate than a class action? Well, and in that circumstance, what really does the plaintiff or the claimant get out of that? Because on a class basis, let's say you've got a class of 1,000 people and you've got $1,000 per or $5,000 per, you can do that math. But if you have just one individual who's going forward in an individual arbitration, doesn't that sound like a lot of work just to get $1,000? It does sound like a lot of work, but, you know, arbitrators do have the ability to consolidate related cases. So a lot of it depends on um, what the arbitration rules are that were written into the contract or not. Uh, but generally, I think, I think from the defense side, arbitration is going to be more attractive. And from the plaintiff side, it's going to be less. And that's one way of looking at you know reducing a risk potentially, depending on how you do it. But I think a couple other ways are, you know, contracts with others and insurance. No doubt about it. I mean, what we're talking about really here is risk transfer. And having arbitration provisions is one way to uh, mitigate risk, not necessarily transferred, but to mitigate it. But with regard to vendor contracts and insurance, that is actually transferring risk. In the case of insurance, it's transferring risk to your insurer. And there are policies that uh, cover BIPA. I mean, they may not have been meant to cover BIPA, but they have been interpreted that way by courts to cover BIPA. Typically, employment uh, practices, liability policies. As we mentioned, what, 70, 75% of the BIPA cases we see are employer cases. So it's natural that an employment liability or EPL policy would be the first place to look, right? Absolutely. And we've also seen cyber policies covering these claims as well as general liability policies. Yes. The general liability uh, caught a lot of people by surprise. We'll talk about insurance in detail in a in a future episode, but that one uh, really uh, was surprising to a lot of folks. It absolutely was. But speaking of that future episode, we look forward to welcoming um, a guest, if not two, for that episode to talk in depth about insurance issues related to BIPA. 
Yes, a- absolutely. Given that Mary and I uh, tend to defend these cases, we do have insurance experts at this firm uh, and other places that we we can bring in to talk about insurance issues. So insurance is one way to transfer risk, but having good vendor contracts in place is another good way to do it. A lot of times in these cases, we see both the developer of the software that's used to collect the biometric information brought into the case, and we also see the employer or the company that's using that uh, piece of software. But there are other contracts that can be important here, and that is, uh, you know, in multiple defendant cases where you've got related entities, you know, who is really responsible for indemnifying a BIPA claim and defending it and who's not. And I would just urge companies that are subject to BIPA to look at their vendor contracts and make sure that they're transferring as much of this risk away from the company as they possibly can. And the other thing they ought to be doing is figuring out who is actually using biometric technology. Because sometimes we find that a company doesn't know that somebody they have a contract with to handle whatever, and it could be a wide range of things, they don't know that that other company is using something that is biometric. They figure, great, you know, we've hired this company, they're taking care of our security, for example. So, some other company comes and, you know, installs a security system in a building, and they install a device where you have to put your hand on it to enter the building. Well, Somebody needs to make sure that that is in compliance with BIPA. And it's not going to be good enough just to point the finger at the other guy and say, oh, they were supposed to do it. Anyone who is arguably using biometric technology or has responsibility for that technology in any way, shape, or form needs to be examining BIPA compliance. That's absolutely right. And I think with that um, said, that marks a good way to conclude our second uh, episode. We really appreciate all of you out there joining uh, and listening in. Uh, We are going to be getting into a lot of issues. Uh, We talked about insurance coverage, but look, uh, a significant issue that we're going to discuss is BIPA is not unique just to Illinois. There are two other states that allow for attorney general enforcement, There are a couple of municipalities that have passed BIPA-like statutes. Plaintiff's attorneys are aggressively pursuing BIPA-like statutes in other states. And we're going to discuss those efforts and what's become of them in a future episode. And some of the legislation that has been introduced, even if it has failed, has been reintroduced and often mirrors BIPA down to the private right of action and down to the potential statutory damages at issue. So there's quite a few of those, and we are seeing even more coming up. All right. Well, lots to discuss in future episodes, and uh, we look forward to you all joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Mary.